Well, good morning. Thanks for being here this morning. My name is DJ. I'm one of the pastors here at Trinity, and this morning it will be my privilege to open up God's Word and lead us in our study of it. So if you've got a copy of the Bible with you this morning, I would invite you to take it out and turn with me to the book of Matthew. We're going to be in Matthew 11, looking at verses 25 through 30 this morning. If you don't have a Bible, there should be one on the seat rack in front of you, uh, and it'll also be up on the screen and in your listening guide this morning. If you didn't get a listening guide on your way in, a little piece of paper that has the text and an outline line and a place to take notes, follow along. You can slip your hand up and Alex will come down from the back. Make sure you get one of those if you would like one. Uh, But this morning we continue our study through the gospel of Matthew. So we are going through a study of Matthew's gospel, looking at the life of Jesus Christ, his life, his death, his resurrection, uh, and at what it means to us today. We love the Bible here at Trinity. We believe it's how God speaks to us, how he reveals himself to us, how he shows us who he is, who we are, and how we relate to him. And our text this morning in in chapter 11 is vitally important for us to understand how we should relate to God, how Jesus invites us to relate to God. I think this text this morning highlights one of the great dangers and one of the great tragedies that faces the church today. And when we talk about that, I don't just mean like the church out there. Like it's, it's very easy to talk about, oh, the church has a lot of problems today. Like not our church, of course, but, you know, the, the church in general. That's not what we want to do this morning. This is a great danger for us today. This is a great danger for our church, for people who love the Bible, who love Jesus, who want to be faithful. We can very easily miss this reality. And this reality that Jesus is talking about today is so, so important for our life, for our peace, for our freedom, and for the joy that comes with following after him. So here's the danger. Here's the tragedy that I want to talk about this morning. One of the greatest tragedies and dangers in the church today is that I think many of us in this room can often be tempted to think that Christianity works a lot like Saving Private Ryan. I don't know if you've seen the movie Saving Private Ryan. I'm going to end up spoiling a lot of it today, but it's been 20 years, so you've had your shot, and I'm sorry if you haven't seen it yet. But I think the way the movie goes kind of highlights the way a lot of us think Christianity works. So Saving Private Ryan is a story about World War II. It takes place uh, after the Normandy invasion in World War II, and it's the story of a soldier named uh, Private Ryan, and he is a paratrooper who, who paratroops in on the D-Day invasion and is behind enemy lines. And what we learn in the opening of the movie is he has four other brothers who are also in the army, and all of them have died. And his mother is getting the telegrams, telling her of the death of all f- these four of her sons all at the same day. And when the army realizes this and the devastation this woman is experiencing, they decide we have to get Ryan out of there and get him home to his mother. Give her one son who will come home to her. And so they send a group of soldiers to go behind enemy lines to go find Ryan and to bring him safely home. And it's, it's Tom Hanks plays the captain who is the commander of this little squad of soldiers who is tasked with go find him and go get him out. And that's what they do. They go, even though some of these guys have... Uh, doubts and questions is why is it worth all of us risking our lives to save, save this one guy, this one nobody? You know, why is his life more important than ours? They do it. They go and they're dutiful to the mission. And one by one over the course of the film, they give their lives in order to find Private Ryan. And when you get to the end of the movie and they finally secure Ryan's exit and get it, are getting him home safely, the last one to fall is Tom Hanks's captain. And as he is dying and Ryan finds him, 
Tom Hanks reaches up, grabs him, and with his dying breath, pulls him close and says the two words that, that echo in our mind at the end of the movie. He says, earn this. And the movie is told in flashback, largely. Flashback of Private Ryan, who was an old man visiting the cemetery at Normandy with his family many, many years later. And so after Hanks gives him these dying words, it cuts forward to him standing over the grave. And this, this old man breaks down and begins to weep. And he looks to his wife and with desperation in his voice, he says, tell me I'm a good man. Tell me I'm a good man. And she says, you are. And we all smile and we wipe our eyes and, and the movie ends. But I'm going to say this morning, I think a lot of us think Christianity operates in that same way. We think of Jesus a lot like we think of those dying words from Tom Hanks' character. We know that Jesus, if we read the Bible, we, we, we know his story. We know he made this amazing sacrifice. You hear of him dying on the cross to save sinners. And we think he's rescued us. He's done this incredible, amazing thing. And then once he does, and once we realize that and we believe, he pulls us close. And he says with his nail-pierced hands, earn this. And we feel probably like Private Ryan felt in the movie, this crushing weight of, how can I ever earn this? You know, can you imagine living your entire life knowing six men gave their lives to bring you home and feeling like you've got to live up to something, to be worth something, to accomplish something with your life? You see it in that final scene, the desperation he feels, begging his wife, tell me I'm a good man, tell me I didn't waste it, the pressure that must come with that. I think we feel that as Christians a lot. We realize God has given so much to us and, and we feel this weight of, I've got to be good enough to, to somehow earn it, to somehow be worthy of what he has given me. I'm going to invite you this morning, if that's a, a story that you've been tempted to cling to, throw it out the window. Because that's not the story that Jesus offers to us. Jesus offers us a better story. Jesus offers us a true story. And that's this, you'll never earn this and you don't have to try. So let's look at his words this morning from Matthew 11. I'm going to read verses 25 through 30, and we'll study it together. At that time, Jesus declared, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. That's God's word for us this morning. Let's pray and we'll study it together. Our God and good Father, we come to you this morning and we humbly ask us that as we study your word, what we know not, teach us. What we have not, give us. What we are not, make us. By your good grace, to the praise of Jesus, in whose name we ask these things, amen. So let's remind ourselves where we are in the story of Jesus's life, right? As we come to verse 25, Jesus is turning to the people and he's, he's giving this encouragement. He's praying in view of them. He's telling them about his identity and he issues them this invitation. But what's the context at which we find this here? Well, 
He's just finished, actually, talking about judgment that is going to befall the region and the city to which he's preaching because of their rejection of him. Because although he's done all of these miracles, all of these signs that were designed to show them who he is and what he came to accomplish, they remain blind to it. Right? They want the dog and pony show, but they're not ready to grasp who this Jesus really is. They're not ready to believe, to repent. And he says that there will be judgment that will fall because of that. It will be easier for the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah on the day of judgment than it will be for Capernaum because of what they've seen and yet remain blind to everything. So that's when, at this point, Jesus begins to talk about how God has hidden these things from the wise and the understanding and revealed them to little children. That's the context in which we find ourselves here. And I think it's helpful to think about that because I think one of the reasons that we are tempted to think we have to earn this grace that that Jesus offers, that he gives, is because we understand from reading the Bible that God's grace is not cheap, right? Right? His forgiveness that he offers is not to be taken lightly and just assumed. But, and so because we understand the gravity of it, that's where we decide, you know, I, I need to earn it. I need to live up to this somehow. But here's the thing. A, a radically restful view of God's grace and an understanding of the weightiness and the seriousness of that grace are not incompatible. They can go together. We can have both at the same time. How can I say that? Well, because... That's what Jesus is saying right here. He's just talked about judgment, about the seriousness of our problem, of our sin. And then he turns around and starts talking about the freedom and the simplicity of the grace of God. So he declares these things to the people. He prays in full hearing of the crowd. And what he does in this prayer as he prays to the Father is he describes coming into his kingdom as ridiculously simple. Ridiculously simple. Verse 25. Jesus declared, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. What are these things that he's talking about? Contextually, it's entry into the kingdom. Right? He's just talked about how the people aren't believing. They're not following after him. And he says, these things have been hidden from the wise and the understanding, and they've been revealed to little children. In order to follow Jesus, what he's saying is it doesn't take great wisdom. It doesn't take fantastic understanding. In fact, it's so easy that a kid can do it. It's so easy that a kid can do it. As you think about what it means to be a Christian, in your conception of what a Christian is, is it something that it's easy to picture a child doing? Or do you require other things to say, well, a real Christian needs to be X, Y, Z. A real Christian needs to to have a good, strong understanding of theology and and know a lot about his Bible. Or, Or a good Christian needs to have established a certain length of track record of respectable obedience before I, well, then, then you're, then you're a real Christian. Here's the thing. If your concept of what a Christian looks like is something that it's hard to picture a child doing, then your conception of a Christian runs example to the exact example that Jesus repeatedly gives for what it looks like to enter his kingdom. We see it right here in the text, right? Jesus thanks God for keeping the the secrets of the kingdom hidden from the wise and understanding and reveals them to little children. And this, this idea of picturing children as what 
faith receiving God's kingdom looks like. This isn't a one-off. This isn't something that Jesus does here and then moves on and never talks about again. But it pops up again and again in the Gospels. Matthew 18, verses 1 through 4, Jesus says that, it says, At that time, the disciples came to Jesus saying, Who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? So these disciples, these 12 guys that are following him around, once again, they go off the reservation. They're like, all right, Jesus, which one of us is the greatest? Which one of us is the, is the greatest in your kingdom? And so Jesus, what does he do? Calling to him a child, he put him in the midst of them and said, Truly I say to you, unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Jesus says, unless you humble yourself like this kid right here, you will never even sniff the kingdom. You want to know who's the greatest? The one who humbles himself like a child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Mark 10, verses 13 through 15, and they were bringing children to him that he might touch them. And the disciples rebuked them. So people are bringing their kids to Jesus because they've heard the stories about this this miracle worker, this great teacher. They They want Jesus to bless their kids. And the disciples, they say, no, 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 this isn't, this is adults only. We don't have time for kids. We don't have the, you know, this Jesus is too important for this kind of stuff. But when Jesus saw it, he was indignant and said to them, let the children come to me. Do not hinder them for to such belongs the kingdom of God. For anyone who will not enter the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. So repeatedly, Jesus uses this imagery of children to paint a picture of this is what real and authentic faith looks like. And what he's teaching us here through this example is that only the humble come to Jesus. Only the humble enter the kingdom. Why does he say that the wise and the understanding don't get it? We need to be like children. He's not saying that we need to be naive or gullible or or check our faculties at the door. But what he's saying is that children come with dependence and trust. They don't come thinking they've got everything figured out. They don't come thinking that they're bringing anything to the table. They simply come. And so this imagery that Jesus paints must have been so striking to his disciples because they're all the time asking, who's the greatest, right? What does it take? Can I sit on your right hand or your left? And Jesus keeps telling him, no, 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 no. You have to become like children. And I can imagine this imagery would have been particularly striking to John, to the disciple John, because in his gospel, he records Jesus calling his disciples children or little children many, many times. And when John, in his epistles, writes to the churches who he is caring for and discipling, he uses the same warm language of little children. It gives me great joy to see my children walking in the faith. See, John started to understand what Jesus was saying, that we must come to him with the humility and the faith of a child in order to enter his kingdom. And so it's important to take this framework and say, what does this mean for us as we think about entering God's kingdom, about the kind of faith that Jesus requires? Think about this. Kids are not capable of understanding a lot of big truths, right? even important truths that are in the Bible. So I still have flashbacks to seven, eight years ago uh, teaching a children's church class with three-year-olds. And the topic of the day was the transfiguration. And I'm sitting here thinking, how on earth am I going to explain the transfiguration to a room of three-year-olds? 
Like, they can't even say transfiguration. And we, we made it through, and we were able to get something of the concept across. But these kids, their minds aren't ready to grasp that. But Jesus says, you don't have to grasp big, amazing, complex truths in order to enter my kingdom. We don't have to understand big, amazing, complex truths in order to be great in Jesus' kingdom, right? The greatest in the kingdom of heaven is the one who is humble like this child. Think about this. Think of the implications of this for your faith and for how we view the church today. Think of in your mind, who is the greatest Christian alive that you can think of? Like he passed away a few years ago, but my mind goes to like Billy Graham, right? Billy Graham, it's hard to imagine a better and greater Christian than Billy Graham. Or, or maybe it's a, a pastor who's been helpful to you, somebody that you've listened to or read, somebody like a John Piper or someone who understands big truths and can communicate them. Well, those guys are, are fantastic, but it's more likely, based on what Jesus is saying here, it's more likely that the greatest Christian alive today is someone you've never heard of and will never hear of. Right? Jesus says the greatest is the lowest. The greatest is the most humble. Kids in the ancient Near Eastern world were thought of with no account, right? Of no significance. Right, they were loved by their families. But societally, kids were thought of as very unimportant, very low. We see that attitude in the disciples when they, people bring their kids to Jesus and they say, we don't have time for this. And yet Jesus says, the one who is like this child is the greatest in my kingdom. So think about that. Let that color how much significance you place on the influence you have on the lives of others, right? A lot of times, even within the church, we are tempted to think, well, my significance is based on how much I can influence and help other people. And there is a good desire. That is a good desire to want to be a helper, whether you're a teacher, whether you serve, whatever your gifting is to say, you know, I, I want to help others. That's fantastic. But your significance is not defined by how wide a circle of influence you have. You can have no influence whatsoever and be the greatest in the kingdom of God. God defines greatness by humility. The wise and understanding are not the central ones in the kingdom of heaven. Little children are. And think about little children. They have no influence. They have no power. They have no authority. They have no respectability. They have no esteem. So why, Christian, do we spend so much of our time pursuing influence and power and authority and respectability and esteem? Why has God set it up this way? You find yourself asking that, like, why on earth would, would you give glory to the least and to the humble and to the little kid and not to the wise and the understanding. That's not how the world works. Well, Jesus says in verse 26 why God has set it up this way. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. In other words, because it pleased God to do it this way. Because God loves to do things this way. And we see that pattern all throughout the Bible, right? God loves to exalt the lowly. And he loves to tear down those who think they are something. Right? God is teaching us there's only one who is something. There's only one who is great, and that's God alone. The people that God reaches out to and lifts up are the downtrodden, the humble, the poor, the outcast. Right? Psalm 138.6, For though the Lord is high, he regards the lowly, but the haughty he knows from afar. Right, this idea that God is high above all things, but he is close to those who are low, to those who are humble. If you're proud, God regards you at a distance. 
It's not the way we think it would go. James chapter 4, God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. So Jesus is hammering this home for us. God, I thank you that you've hidden these things. You've hidden the truths of my kingdom from the wise and the understanding, and you've put them down on the bottom shelf. You've, you've put the best food at the kids' table. This is the God that we serve who has made it so that you don't have to be smart. You don't have to be wise. You don't have to be brilliant or influential or whatever the case may be. You only have to come to him with faith like a child. Only the humble come to Jesus. So if the ones who are in a position to get God's blessings are the humble, the next question is, how do they get God's blessings, right? And that's where we see in verse 27, Jesus pointing out the only way to God comes through Jesus. Verse 27, all things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. So if the humble are who get God's blessings, how do they get God's blessings? Plainly put, to summarize verse 27, they get them through Jesus. They get them through Jesus. He is the means by which we come to God. And he's the only means by which we come to God. And he says so right here, and he says so about as strongly and definitively as he possibly could. I mean, think about this sentence. In, in just the span of verse 27, Jesus manages to offend basically everyone, basically the entire world. We trip over what he says here. In one sentence, Jesus claims that God has given him special authority over all the universe, right? All things have been handed over to me by my Father. He claims that he is God's unique son, and God alone understands the fullness of his true nature. No one knows the Son except the Father. He claims that the only person who truly knows God is him. No one knows the Father except the Son. And he claims that the only way that people can know God is for him to reveal him to them. No one knows the Father except the Son and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. Think about that. Let the full force of that hit you, of what it is that Jesus is claiming. He is saying, I am the only way you are going to know God. This is Jesus from his own mouth, in his own words. Like, if you've been around the church, you're probably familiar with this claim that Jesus is the only way to God. But a lot of times people assume, well, that's just the invention of arrogant Christians, right? Or it's something the church kind of came up with over the course of, of the years. But you can't square that with what came out of Jesus' mouth right here in verse 27. He's saying, if you want to come to God, you come through me. He claimed to be God's only and unique son. Right? And this flies in the face. You can't square this with any other religion or philosophy of thought. See, our culture wants to say, well, Jesus is good, like he said great things, he's a great moral teacher, but you know, if we, you, you can't say he's the only way, right? Because you've got to fit him in with, with other things. He's compatible with whatever religion or school of thought you might have. But here in this verse, Jesus puts a knife in there. He claims to be God's only and unique son. Islam rejects the very notion that God could possibly have a son. It's blasphemous to the Muslim. Jesus claims to, to speak with the authority of God. 
Buddhism and atheism reject that there is a personal God that we could know in any such way who could, who could be said to speak into the world. Jesus claims to be the only means to know God. Hinduism rejects the notion that there's only one God at all. Agnosticism rejects the notion that God is knowable, that we can actually really know what he is like. Secularism rejects the notion that any one concept of God is more valid than any other. In one sentence here, Jesus says nobody can know God unless he shows them, reveals to them who the Father is. Don't miss this. So we just looked at who is able to receive God's blessings, right? You have to be low. You have to be ready to come to God like a child. That's who can receive God's blessings. We're about to look at the amazing life-changing reality of what it means to receive those blessings, the benefits that it brings about in our lives. But this verse right here, verse 27, this is the hinge on which the door turns. The only way for us to come through God is through Jesus Christ. And I didn't make that up. The church didn't make that up. Jesus said it himself, and he said it as strongly and clearly as we can imagine. And so if he said it this strongly and this clearly, we do well to pay attention to it. Maybe you sit here this morning and you think, I don't know if I'm ready to accept that. That that sounds arrogant. That sounds exclusive. It sounds unloving. I don't know that I'm ready to accept that. Well, we can have a conversation about that. that. That's fine. But what I want you to understand, what you can't walk away from here is thinking that the church made up this idea. Jesus himself said it. And so if Jesus himself said it, then we have to look at who he is, look at his life and say, does he and his life make this a plausible, believable claim? Because this is what he said he came to do. The wise and understanding, they hear this statement by Jesus and they reject it. That's what many in the crowd did. That's why he pronounced the woes that he pronounced in the sermon last week that that Pastor Todd preached to us. But if you're willing to hear verse 27, humbly, like a little child, then an incredible gift awaits you. And that's what we see in verses 28 through 30, that Jesus promises real rest. He establishes who he is. He establishes the authority that he's been given by God the Father. He's established what greatness in his kingdom looks like. And in verse 28, he issues an invitation. All right, here's who can receive God's blessings. They come through me. Now, what do we need to do? And in verse 28, the invitation is given, and it is ridiculously simple. Come to me. Come to me. It's so simple a kid can do it. It's not rocket science. I guarantee you, if I were to go down to the Trinity Kids building and walk in the door and tell all the kids that are down there, come to me, all of them would understand what I'm asking them to do. All of them would be able to get that and would be able to do that. Jesus simply invites us, come come to me. You want to know God? I'm the one who can show him to you. Come. Who does he invite to come? Verse 28, all who labor and are heavy laden. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden. The word here for labor is a word in the Greek that implies very hard work. Excuse me, and it implies the weariness that comes from hard work. It's the same word that pops up in 1 Timothy 5.17. 
where it says, let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. So Timothy there is saying, honor your elders, those who are working hard, who are busting it at preaching and teaching the word to you. So this idea of labor, think of the hardest day of work that you've ever done, whether it was at your job, whether it was working in your yard, trying to get something done around the house, where you get to the end of the day and you just want to sink into the bed and it feels amazing. That weariness, that just, you wore yourself out. That's the picture here of those who labor, those who are, who are work, working themselves and weary as a result. The word heavy laden comes from a verb in the Greek that means to pack up, right? The imagery is literally of packing a bag, of packing a load that you're carrying around on your back. Come to me all those who labor and are heavy laden, who have a heavy load that they're hauling around. What's the heaviest thing you've ever lugged around? Maybe a sack of concrete that you got to pick up at Home Depot. Maybe a washer or dryer, right? Anytime you ever move. You know, there's the things that are easy to move, and then there's the hard things, and then there's the washer. Like the washing machine, it's a wonder more people are not dead because of moving washers and dryers. Maybe it's a baby. When the baby hits the stage where they're still in the, like, carrier, but they're almost big enough to not be in the carrier anymore, and you're carrying them around like this, and after, like, 30 seconds, you feel like your arm is going to fall off. Think of the heaviest thing you've ever lugged around in your life. When we talk about heavy laden, the imagery is think of that thing like on your back and you're hauling it around with you everywhere that you go. Jesus calls those who labor and those who are heavy laden, who are weighed down with a burden to come to him. And what does he promise? I will give you rest. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Now, when you've worked hard all day long, and when you've carried around that heavy thing all day long, how good does the word rest sound? Like, how inviting does your bed look? Does the notion of rest feel? Like, that's what we crave. It's what we desire when we've had a hard day, a long day. And so I'm asking you, if you're working yourself to the bone spiritually, If you would say, man, I'm carrying around so much. I'm trying to do all of these things, trying to be obedient to all the Ten Commandments, doing everything that I possibly can, working myself to the bone. How good does the notion of spiritual rest sound? How good does the notion of come to me, drop the burden, and I will give you rest? What if you could rest from your work, spiritually speaking? right? What if you could rest from your striving? What if you could rest from the endless hamster wheel of trying to be good enough, trying to be obedient enough, trying to be righteous enough, trying to be spiritual enough, trying to earn this? What if it could just be lifted away just like that? That's what Jesus is is offering here. Come to me, those who are weary and heavy laden, and I'll give you rest. And this isn't just an unimportant little detail. This idea of rest is central to the Christian faith, right? It's it's so central that God built it into the very fabric of creation, right? Dave read a passage for us during the scripture reading in Hebrews that alludes to this, that talks about God. Why did he rest on the seventh day from his creative works? Is it because he was tired? Of course not. So why did God rest on the seventh day? To teach us of the need for us to rest. Not just physically, I mean, you you have to rest physically or you will die, 
but he's teaching us that we need to rest spiritually, right? Hebrews 4.10, whoever has rested, whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works as God did from his. If we're going to know the rest of God, we've got to cease trying to work ourselves into the kingdom and trust in the work that he's already done. Trust in the work that Christ has done for us. We need rest. And Jesus offers it. And he invites it. He says, stop trying to be good enough on your own and come to me. Come to me and I will give you rest. Now you might say, wait a minute. Because I've been here for all this Matthew study. And I remember back in the Sermon on the Mount. And there was a lot of stuff in there that didn't really sound easy or restful, right? So, so what, what is it? Remember back at what, what happened to all the warring against anger and hatred and lust and pride? What about loving our enemies? What about take up your cross and follow me? Which is it? Am I supposed to do all of those things? Or am I supposed to rest? The answer is yes. Yes. Look at verse 29. The rest that Jesus calls us to is not devoid of work. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden. I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. Jesus calls us to take up a yoke, not a mattress, right? What, what is a yoke? A yoke is something that is used to do work. It is what you would put over the necks of oxen to help them pull a burden, it was designed to take the load off of just one animal and spread it out among a team of animals. It's an implement of work, but it's an implement that is designed to make work easier. Jesus says, take my yoke upon you and I will, I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. So when we talk about this rest, it's not something where we just, we never do anything ever again. But Jesus is different than a lot of the people that we work for. Jesus is different than working for ourselves even. Jesus is no harsh taskmaster. He's not beating us senseless or shaming us when we don't meet our quota. He's gentle and he's humble, right? Learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. Come work for me, and you will know what rest is like. Why? Because my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. These people knew what burden looked like. The religious teachers of their day, they said, you've got you've to know and do all of these commandments. And in fact, that's too easy. We're going to make up extra commandments that you've got to follow if you're going to be right or good or spiritual or holy. And these people were weighed down under this burden. And I, I guarantee you, you and I today have felt that, have felt what it is to feel like no matter how good I do, no matter how hard I try, I can never be the person that I want to be let alone the person I'm sure God wants me to be. What do I do with that? Jesus says, look, why don't you take that off and you take my yoke on you? Because it's easy. The burden that you carry for me is light. And it sounds counterintuitive to say, do Jesus' work and you will find rest. We would think, isn't the way that I find rest by just doing whatever I want? By forgetting Jesus and his commands entirely? But it's not true, is it? It's not true. Think of all the things in this world that we turn to to give us rest and peace for our souls. How does that work? How's that going for you? 
pastor and author Douglas Sean O'Donnell uh, put it this way, talking about this promise from Jesus of rest when we come to work for him. He says, take Jesus up on it. I'm serious. Come on. How heavy is all that junk you are carrying on your back? Has sexual immorality brought you rest? Has that perfect girl or guy brought you rest? Has your education brought you rest? Has climbing the corporate ladder brought you rest? Has any of that stuff you keep buying, the house, the car, the vintage sports car, the vacation home, the home entertainment center, the hot tub, the box of Twinkies, has any of that brought you rest? Has any of that really brought you rest? See, our culture says, just do what you want, follow your heart, pursue your dreams, and life will be great. But it's not true. It's an empty, dead-end street. I remember seeing, it's always stuck with me, an interview with Tom Brady, probably 10 years ago. Guy, here's a guy who's Super Bowl-winning quarterback, married to a supermodel, filthy rich, insanely popular. And the interviewer, I think it was on 60 Minutes, asked him, you know, what's it like? What's it like to be Tom Brady? And Brady said, he said, I look around, I think, there's got to be more than this, right? Here's a guy who has everything, and it doesn't satisfy. It doesn't bring rest. Instead of all of our empty pursuits, Jesus invites us to take up a yoke, his yoke. He invites us to take his burden, which is a light burden. Look, following Jesus will involve some of the hardest things you will ever do. It will involve dying to self. It will involve obedience to hard commands, loving your enemies, turning away from what you want and doing what he calls you to do instead. It will take war on your part against these impulses that live within us to do sinful things, to reject God. It's going to be hard. But at the same time, in a way that defies logical sense, it will also bring rest for your soul. When you're working for Jesus, when you're following after him, there's a freedom that comes with that that is difficult to explain. It's not the way that it should go, but it's the way that it does go. Jesus will bring your soul rest, not just in the life to come, right? Not just in the ultimate peace and rest that is promised when this life is over. He will bring you rest in this life too. Philippians 4, 6 through 7, in a, a promise that may be familiar to some of us, do not be anxious about anything. But in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. The Bible there is saying, don't be anxious about anything, but bring it to God. Trust in Him. And His peace will shelter your soul. His peace that surpasses all understanding. It surpasses all understanding because it doesn't make any sense. It shouldn't work. It's not how our minds think it's supposed to go. But that's the kind of peace that God offers. That's the kind of rest that he offers. He says, come and work for me. Come and die to self. Come and take up your cross and follow me, and you'll have rest. It doesn't seem like it would make sense, but it's true. Take him up on it. You can't earn this. And, and you shouldn't even try. Stop trying. Rest in him. Like the world so often thinks that Christianity is about being good enough or righteous enough or trying hard enough or nice enough, whatever the case may be, whatever people's concept is. 
And that's a, it's, it's climbing an escalator that's going in the down direction. You're never going to get there. But I think for even those of us in the church, we understand grace. We understand the gift of the cross and Jesus dying for sinners like us. And we think, what an amazing and, and unfathomable gift. But, but we still, we have the Private Ryan mentality of we have to earn this. And we have to spend our lives. And maybe you're sitting here this morning and you feel like, you know, I'm trying as hard as I can to do all this stuff and I'm not good enough. And maybe you want to cling to Jesus and be like, tell me I'm a good man. Tell me I did good enough. Tell me I've earned in some sense what this is. You feel weight and desperation bogging you down all the time. Jesus says, throw it out the window. Find rest in me. Because you're not dependent on your righteousness to have peace with God. Jesus gives it freely. He offers peace just by coming to him. Just by showing up and trusting that he will take care of you. He will make you right. He will mold you and shape you into the image of his father. And you don't have to earn it on the back end any more than you had to earn it on the front end. Stop trying to earn it. Rest in Christ for his yoke is easy and his burden is light. So what do we do with this? Are you trying to come to Jesus with your wisdom and understanding? Do you think that there are things you have to master or understand or get just right in order to have significance in God's kingdom? Or are you prepared to simply come like a child, humble, of no account, and find your significance there? Not in who you are and what you can do, but in Christ and what he has offered to make you. Are you prepared to just be one of God's kids? And that's enough. Have you come to terms with the fact that the only way to know God is through Jesus Christ? Or have you dismissed those claims as, oh, that's just what Christians have made up. It's arrogance, it's not true. Because we all want the rest, right? This world is, is pleading and clamoring for rest and peace. But if we reject what Jesus said about himself, we're never going to find it. If you had to describe your spiritual life this morning, would you say it's full of labor and heavy burdens? Or would you say it's an easy yoke and light burdens? Now, I'm not asking you about the circumstances of your life. You, you might be in a situation, a season of life where life is hard, where you're suffering, where you're suffering with broken relationships, maybe with physical suffering, maybe with stress or anxiety in your life. I'm not asking, is the situation you find yourself in easy? I'm saying, how is your soul responding to those circumstances? to that situation. If it's not with a restful trust in Christ, then you are missing this amazing gift. Your fears, your anxieties, your suffering does not disqualify you from being central in God's kingdom. Come to him. Trust in him. If you would say, I don't, I don't have rest this morning. I don't feel like I have rest in my soul. Why not? Let's talk about that. Let's, let's meet up, have coffee this week. What is it that's troubling you? What is it that makes you feel like you can't lay hold of this? Because Christ offers it freely. Come to Jesus, all who are weary and heavy laden, and he will give you rest. That's a promise that we need to lay hold of. And so as we work to be obedient to the commands of God, don't do it thinking that this is some means of justifying your acceptance with him. But do it as a grateful child who has been perfectly provided for 
by your good father. Let's pray.